Chapter 8 of A Gentleman of Leisure. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Gentleman of Leisure by P. G. Woodhouse. 8. At Drever. In the days before the Welshman began to expend his surplus energy in playing rugby football, he was accustomed, whenever the monotony of his everyday life began to oppress him, to collect a few friends and make raids across the border into England, to the huge discomfort of the dwellers on the other side. It was to cope with this habit that Drever Castle, in Shropshire, came into existence. It met a long-felt want. In time of trouble it became a haven of refuge. From all sides people poured into it, emerging cautiously when the marauders had disappeared. In the whole history of the castle there is but one instance recorded of a bandit attempting to take the place by storm, and the attack was an emphatic failure. On receipt of a ladleful of molten lead, aimed to a nicety by one John the chaplain, evidently one of those sporting parsons, this warrior retired, done to a turn to his mountain fastnesses, and is never heard of again. He would seem, however, to have passed the word round among his friends. For subsequent raiding parties studiously avoided the castle, and a peasant who had succeeded in crossing its threshold was for the future considered to be home and out of the game. Such was Drever in the olden times. Today, the Welshman having calmed down considerably, it had lost its militant character. The old walls still stood, grey, menacing, and unchanged, but they were the only link with the past. The castle was now a very comfortable country house, nominally ruled over by Hildebrand Spencer Poin de Burg, John Haddiside Coombe Crumbie, twelfth Earl of Drever, Spenny to his relatives and intimates, but in reality the possession of his uncle and aunt, Sir Thomas and Lady Julia Blunt. Spenny's position was one of some embarrassment. At no point in their history had the Drevers been what one might call a parsimonious family. If a chance presented itself of losing money in a particularly wild and futile manner, the Drever of the period had invariably sprung at it with the vim of an energetic bloodhound. The South Sea bubble absorbed two hundred thousand pounds of good Drever money, and the remainder of the family fortune was squandered to the ultimate farthing by the sportive gentleman who had held the title in the days of the Regency, when Watiers and the Cocoa Tree were in their prime and fortunes had a habit of disappearing in a single evening. When Spenny became Earl of Drever there was about eighteen pence in the old hope chest This is the point at which Sir Thomas Blunt breaks into Drever history. Sir Thomas was a small, pink, fussy, obstinate man, with a genius for trade and the ambition of a Napoleon, probably one of the finest and most complete specimens of the came-over-Waterloo-Bridge-with-half-a-crown-in-my-pocket-and-now-look-at-me class of millionaire in existence. He had started almost literally with nothing. By carefully excluding from his mind every thought except that of making money, he had risen in the world with a gruesome persistence which nothing could check. At the age of fifty-one he was chairman of Blunt Stores Limited, a member of Parliament, silent as a wax figure, but a great comfort to the party by virtue of liberal contributions to its funds, and a knight. This was good, but he aimed still higher. And meeting Spenny's aunt, Lady Julia Coombe Crumbie, just at the moment when, financially, the Drevers were at their lowest ebb, he had effected a very satisfactory deal by marrying her, 
thereby becoming, as one might say, the chairman of Drever Limited. Until Spenny should marry money, an act on which his chairman vehemently insisted, Sir Thomas held the purse. And, except in minor matters ordered by his wife, of whom he stood in uneasy awe, had things entirely his own way. One afternoon, a year after the events recorded in the preceding chapter, he was in his private room looking out of the window. The view from that window was very beautiful. The castle stood on a hill, the lower portion of which, between the house and the lake, had been cut into broad terraces. The lake itself, with its island with the little boathouse in the center, was a glimpse of fairyland. But it was not altogether the beauty of the view that had drawn Sir Thomas to the window. He was looking at it more because the position enabled him to avoid his wife's eye, and just at the moment he was rather anxious to avoid his wife's eye. A somewhat stormy board-meeting was in progress, and Lady Julia, who constituted the board of directors, had been heckling the chairman. The point under discussion was one of etiquette, and in matters of etiquette Sir Thomas felt himself at a disadvantage. "'I tell you, my dear,' he said to the window, "'I am not easy in my mind.' "'Nonsense!' snapped Lady Julia. "'Absurd! Ridiculous!' Lady Julia Blunt, when conversing, resembled a maxim-gun more than anything else. "'But your diamonds, my dear? I can take care of them. But why should you have the trouble? Now if we—it's no trouble. When we were married there was a detective. Don't be childish, Thomas. Detectives at weddings are quite customary. But—bah! I paid twenty thousand pounds for that rope of pearls," said Sir Thomas obstinately. Switched things onto a cash basis, and he was more himself. "'May I ask if you suspect any of our guests of being criminals?' inquired Lady Julia frostily. Sir Thomas looked out of the window. At the moment the sternest censor could have found nothing to cavil at in the movements of such of the house-party as were in sight. Some were playing tennis, some clock-golf, and others were smoking. "'Why not?' he began. "'Of course. Absurd. Quite absurd.' "'But the servants! We have engaged a number of new servants lately. With excellent recommendations.' Sir Thomas was on the point of suggesting that the recommendations might be forged, but his courage failed him. Julia was sometimes so abrupt in these little discussions she did not enter in his point of view. He was always a trifle inclined to treat the castle as a branch of blunt stores. As a proprietor of the stores he had made a point of suspecting everybody, and the results had been excellent. In blunt stores you could hardly move in any direction without bumping into a gentlemanly detective efficiently disguised. For the life of him Sir Thomas could not see why the same principle should not obtain at Drever. Guests at a country house do not as a rule steal their host's possessions, but then it is only an occasional customer at a store who goes in for shoplifting. It was the principle of the thing, he thought. Be prepared against every emergency. With Sir Thomas Blunt, suspiciousness was almost a mania. He was forced to admit that the chances were against any of his guests exhibiting larcenous tendencies, but as for the servants, he thoroughly mistrusted them all except Saunders, the butler. 
It had seemed to him the merest prudence that a detective from a private inquiry agency should be installed at the castle while the house was full. Somewhat rashly, he had mentioned this to his wife, and Lady Julia's critique of the scheme had been terse and unflattering. "'I suppose,' said Lady Julia sarcastically, "'you will jump to the conclusion that this man whom Spenny is bringing down with him today is a criminal of some sort.' "'Eh? Is Spenny bringing a friend?' There was not a great deal of enthusiasm in Sir Thomas's voice. His nephew was not a young man whom he respected very highly. Spenny regarded his uncle with nervous apprehension, as one who would deal with his shortcomings with vigor and severity. Sir Thomas, for his part, looked on Spenny as a youth who would get into mischief unless he had an eye fixed on him. So he proceeded to fix that eye. "'I had a wire from him just now.' "'Who is his friend?' "'He doesn't say.' He just says he's a man he met in London." "'Hm. And what does hm mean?' demanded Lady Julia. "'A man can pick up strange people in London,' said Sir Thomas judicially. "'Nonsense.' "'Just as you say, my dear.' Lady Julia rose. "'And as for what you suggest about the detective, it is, of course, absolutely absurd.' "'Quite so, my dear.' You mustn't think of it. Just as you say, my dear." Lady Julia left the room. What followed may afford some slight clue to the secret of Sir Thomas Blunt's rise in the world. It certainly suggests singleness of purpose, which is one of the essentials of success. No sooner had the door closed behind Lady Julia than he went to his writing-table, took pen and paper, and wrote the following letter. To the manager. Rags Detective Agency, Holborn Bars, London, E.C. Sir, with reference to my last of the twenty-eighth, Alt, I should be glad if you would send down immediately one of your best men, and making arrangements to receive him. Kindly instruct him to present himself at Drever Castle as applicant for position of valet to myself. I will see and engage him on his arrival, and further instruct him in his duties. Yours faithfully, Thomas Blunt. P.S. I shall expect him tomorrow evening. There is a good train leaving Paddington at 2.15." He read it over and put in a couple of commas, then placed it in an envelope, and lit a cigar with the air of one who can be checked, yes, but vanquished, never. End of chapter 8